what happened is after four weeks it, with that environment and that type of work, I said to my boss, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. How much time do you need? And he said, six weeks or two weeks is fine. And after six weeks, I left that job and started TransPerfect. But, but I felt incredibly guilty, of course, because quitters never win and winners never quit. <laughs> that was my mentality. And look what I was doing. Welcome to the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today, I am joined by Liz Elting. Liz is a billion-dollar founder, Forbes' richest self-made woman and best-selling author with a truly unique leadership story. Liz co-founded and served as co-CEO of TransPerfect, the world's largest translation services provider for 25 years. She built the startup from the ground up in her college dorm without the crutch of outside funding or investors. She served as co-CEO until 2018 and has since served as founder and CEO of Elizabeth Elting Foundation focusing on advocacy for women in the workplace. Liz has been recognized as a now Women of Power and Influence, American Express and Entrepreneur Magazine's Woman of the Year, and one of Forbes' richest self-made women every year since the list's inception. She is the author of Dream Big and Win, a book that translates passion into purpose, and a guest lecturer at Columbia and NYU. That's a, that's a, you got a lot going on. Liz, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me here today. So you you had this this big moment in 2018, uh, if I may, a liquidity event. I just walk me through what happens, and forgive me for being so direct. It said, you know, richest self made woman. What happens when you get hundreds of millions of dollars? I think so many of us we we imagine those moments, whether it's something we're pursuing or not, like. When, when those zeros hit your bank account or when that moment happens, like what goes through your head? Relief. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was relief in my case. I mean, my case was a yeah. little dramatic too, because mine was not a, a simple sale. Not that any sale is simple, but mine had a lot of drama along the way to even sell. Yeah, we're, so it was enormous relief. Yeah. We're going to cover some yeah. of, some of that period of time or what, what, what you're allowed to speak about. Yes. But so this moment happens, you're, again, you're probably already doing very okay, but um, this, this financial windfall, you wake up the next morning, is it, is it like a now what moment? It, it really is a now what moment. And that's why it's so interesting now to talk to people and say things like, what would you do if you could do whatever you wanted, right? If you won the yeah. lottery, if you realized, okay, you're set financially, what would you do? And to ask them and for them to think about it. And I didn't think that much about it until I got there. So it is a what now moment. How Absolutely. Much, how much time did it take you? Is it Was it a day, a week, a month, a year where you kind of sit around like, again, now what? Like, what am I going to do next? So fortunately what happened, and I talk about this, I think it was in the final chapter of my book about literally the next day I had an interview with a magazine about my story and where I was then. And it was a whole different place where I had been the previous 25 plus years. So that was sort of a kind of wow moment and aha moment, like, wow, I am in a new phase. But as far as how I felt, there were a few weeks where I felt like, oh my goodness, what is my purpose? Yes. Uh, you know, my whole identity had been tied up in being CEO of the company and my employees and my clients. And of course, 
you know, my, my team was my second family. So what was my identity? And it felt really strange and a little odd and not ideal initially. And that, that's eventually what led, if I may, to your, the foundation. Yes. But what, what, what does a, uh, what does a typical day look like in your life today? I can tell you how it is now. And it's changed over the last five and a half years, because when I first sold, I actually considered using the proceeds to buy another company and grow it or start another company mm. and scale it. Went through that for a few weeks, not too long, maybe as long as a month or so. And then I realized, no, that wasn't for me. And so then I realized there are so many people who need help out there. And I saw this from my time as a woman um, and the sexism I experienced. And then I saw it with our employees and then people from marginalized populations, people from diverse groups and people who just hadn't been given a chance. So in response to your question, for the last five or so years, I've focused on my foundation and I'm on a number of boards, nonprofit boards and committees and national councils. So I do that. I do a lot of events where I speak about entrepreneurship and I, I've been doing that and just learning a lot about that. I, I didn't answer the day question exactly, but I'll tell you now what my day involves because Please. I think that's yeah. what you started with. So in the last couple of years, I've focused on writing my book. So basically in 2022, I wrote the book and that was a lot of my focus along with my philanthropy and my speaking about entrepreneurship. And then in 2023, I focused on selling that book. And you know, when you write a book and I didn't know it, it was all new for me because I had been an entrepreneur. I had been a philanthropist, but I had never written a book. And when you write a book, all of a sudden, after you go through the year or so of writing it, you become your CMO, your CSO, you're in sales. you are you're the in chief man. Yeah. Yes, you are in sales all over again, like when you launched your company. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was doing pretty much all of 2023 marketing, sales of my book, setting up events, setting up podcasts, and then going out and speaking. And now, I'm doing a lot of the same thing, lots of podcasts, lots of events, still very involved in the philanthropy. Um, and, and that's what my days involve. So, and it's wonderful. So you're staying busy and, and going hard, if I may, at a yes. lot of things, yes. as opposed to a lot of your career, it was just an all consuming total absorption, total focus in transperfect and, and very much one thing. So it's, it's different. Absolutely. And that is the big difference. And you know, because you are an incredibly successful entrepreneur, but as you know, when you start a company, you've got to be all in. And I think that is so critical to being successful. I, I say, focus, focus, focus on it. Like your life depends on it. And then your dreams will come true. Then it will be like magic. Although of course it's not like magic because you're giving it everything you everything have. You got, and yeah. yeah. And you, you go to sleep at night thinking, okay, how can I sell more? How can I grow my company? You wake up in the morning. How can I grow yeah. more? How can I develop business? And that's how it is for years when you are an entrepreneur and it's all about the company and you don't have time for the philanthropy. You don't have time to write a book. I mean, I know some people do it, but I couldn't do it. I have to be all in. So to, speaking of all in, let me go back in time. Yes. And let's talk about you as a kid, right? As a child, um, where'd you grow up? So I was born in Westchester, New York. Um, and I lived in Chappaqua until I was eight. 
Then when I was eight and nine, had the opportunity to move to Portugal. I know. Yeah. You, you had some, you have a very interesting childhood. I want to explore it a little bit. Oh, thank you. That was amazing. And then when I was 10, we moved to Toronto. Why, why, why did your family choose sure. to do that? Sure. So we, well, my father was actually very entrepreneurial and very interested in all that was international. So he had been in marketing first and then moved to advertising and he, when I was eight, got the opportunity to open Kentucky Fried Chicken in Portugal. He got the franchise, wow. the right to open KFC. So we thought, okay, I've never uh, run a restaurant company before. I've never opened a restaurant, but I, I understand marketing. I understand advertising. All, and I love the idea of being an entrepreneur. So we ended up moving there when I was eight, back in 1974. And right after we moved there, the Portuguese Communist Re Revolution broke out. So it was a tricky time to be there. It was a fascinating time to be there, but it was tricky. When there's a communist re revolution, it's not the best time to be an entrepreneur is what exactly. you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> it's not the best time to open an American business. Yeah, they wanted not. nothing to do with Americans. And so if there's yeah, anything that yeah. crosses cultural and ideological um, boundaries, it's Kentucky fried chicken. It's That's fried chicken. That's right. <laughs> that is. And it just was the wrong time. Yeah. And it ended up being a dangerous time to be well, an American me, over me, there. Let me take a step back. When, yeah. How was that when you're seven, eight years old, do your parents sit you down and say, hey, great news. We're uh, going to uproot you from this nice little bubble life you live and we're going to a foreign country. Like what, how did, how did that happen? We had traveled. I mean, you know, the way families mm -hmm. travel. And I remember when I was four, my family actually rented a house with a couple other families in Jamaica. And my dad and I think one of the other dads talked about, oh, we should move here and open a car rental business. So the idea was there. We'd heard about it. And then actually, as far as Portugal, because my dad loved all things that were international, he actually, a couple of years later, built a house before he got this KFC opportunity that he ended up saying, okay, we're going to have a house there. Maybe we'll travel there once or twice a year and stay in the, the Algarve, the South of Port Portugal, beautiful area. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been there, Lagos, and we'll rent it out when we're not there. So it was a, an entrepreneurial opportunity. It was an opera business opportunity. And I remember he made a color brochure, which was a big deal back in 1974. I mean, now we wouldn't even see a hard copy yeah. color brochure because we'd see something on the internet. Original but VRBO. that was how the idea came about. I assume you didn't speak Portuguese. Before I didn't you went speak there. a word of Portuguese. No. So we moved to Portugal, um, and I immediately started taking Portuguese and French in school. When I was eight, they taught both. And was learning a? I mean, this became your light, your business, very much yes. so. But, but was was did you find that you just had a natural talent for picking up languages or was it a struggle? I mean, yeah, for me, that was one of the few things I happen to be decent at. I, I am not talented. I am not a singer. I'm not an artist. I'm not an athlete like you. Um, I, yeah, the, the languages came naturally and I loved them. I thought it was so much fun. Speaking and so you're languages. in Portugal for a year or two and then you know, political unrest happens. Walk me through what that was like, especially within the home. Was it, was there fear? Was there concern? Yeah. 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 In fact, we were, I mean, this is a lot of detail, but my mom and my sister and I were living in Lagos in the Algarve initially at our house. And my dad was living in Lisbon and then he would commute on weekends south, five hours south. But because of the danger, and there was danger, there were demonstrations outside our 
house. There, our phone started being tapped. Our mail started being open. Why, why was that? Because you were American business people. Yes. And, and they looked at you as some sort of a threat. Yeah. Threat. Yeah. Yeah. And they thought, or he wor- well, they know, thought yeah. he worked for the CIA Got because it. they would, I, they would say, Oh, what, how what do we you- know he did? No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I remember when he went, I mean, KFC he- <laughs> is a great front business for CIA. Yeah. Yes, it would be. I remember when he went to training in Louisville, Kentucky, yeah. Kentucky for seven weeks, I think it was. Anyway, the point is, um, he was really a, a marketing advertising guy the whole rest of his career. But the answer is they thought he did. And, you know, it wasn't good being American. So what happened is halfway through the school year, we moved my fam, my mom and my sister and I moved up to Lisbon and we rented a house there because we needed to all be together just for safety. For purposes. safety. So how long were you in Portugal total? Was so it two we were, years? We were only there for the school year because okay. my parents waited till the school year ended and then we came back. And so you came back to Westchester? Yes, we came back to Westchester for one more year, but my dad wanted another opportunity. Yeah, he just, I mean, he, he, like, he just had a natural entrepreneur's bent. Like he, he was looking he to do something interesting. It he like. did. And he was looking at places other than Canada, but I think, you know, for safety reasons, yeah. we did Toronto. We didn't go crazy. Yeah, and we so did And so what Toronto. did he do? Was it the same business? It, so he went, he had actually been at Gray Advertising before we moved. Okay. Then he took this year off and- worked to open KFC and then he went back to Gray New York and then Gray New York uh Gray advertising mm-hmm. moved him to Gray Toronto uh, they yeah relocated him And how long were you in uh, Toronto for so Until I went off to college which was when I was wow. 17 So would you so in terms of total time I mean you it sounds like you almost spent as much time in Canada as maybe the state as I the did. US I did. So I really feel like I grew up in Toronto because yeah, it was those especially formative the more years. Form, formative Absolutely. years with a little stop in Portugal in between. Interesting. And so in Toronto I assume you continued your linguistic uh, studies? Yeah, I got to continue with French. I mean Portuguese yeah. was not taught, but then when I was in high school I had the opportunity to start studying Latin and Spanish. So I ended up taking those three languages, French, and again, Latin, just, it, and Spanish. Not that it came easy, but it was something that you found yourself to be good at. Yeah. I mean, better than anything else. Let's put it that so way. It the, wasn't so that time, I was so amazing. So I by mean, the yeah. time you graduated high school, you spoke English, French, Latin. I had studied Latin. Yeah. Spanish. Yeah. Like conversational Spanish? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Spanish was okay. And yep. Portuguese? Did and you were, I had lost uh, most yeah, of the Portuguese okay. at that point. Okay. And and because this all very much, especially for the listeners who may not be familiar with what you ended up building from a company, this all leads into what you ended up doing. And so it it's interesting how that happens. And so um, high school in Canada, were you a very driven, disciplined person? Or is that is that maybe something that's kind of switched on later in life? I think I was driven enough. I, I got good grades, but I wasn't one of those people who was all about the academics. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. I, I loved the languages. Those were fun. But, and I talk about this in my book, I started working and working really gave me a lot of pleasure. I, I, I mean, my, my parents encouraged me to work from a very young age. What were some of the jobs you you had? Oh, gosh. Well, when I was 10, I, this was my first job. I walked a boy to school. I was in fifth grade and he was in second grade. So I remember that job very well. I walked him to and from school because sure. he lived in my building. So it worked perfectly. And I babysat a lot. I delivered newspapers. Um, 
And then I talk about my job at the dry cleaners. I did telemarketing. I mean, all, you know, so all you kinds of things. you were constantly working. Yeah, I was. Uh, and then my favorite job that was really a gift is I got to work for the Toronto Blue Jays. I was an usherette oh, for four cool. summers during college. I always had a day job where... You know, it was what I thought I should do, something like telemarketing or financial administrator. But then my night and weekend job was being an usherette for the Blue Jays, and it was so much and fun. And did you do this in lieu of, let's call it socializing, like a lot of young kids do, where they're they're totally focused on what's going on that night, who's hanging out with who, and how do I get to that party? But it sounds like you might have been more focused on working and creating wealth or something to that effect. <laughs> yes. And it wasn't so much, you know, being all about money exactly. It was more, well, I knew I needed to be independent financially. My parents had always said, we don't want you to be dependent on anyone financially. You need to be able to rely on yourself. But I think it, I, and I talk about this in the book, I had a, a bad experience. I basically was hit by a car Oof. when I was 14 and unconscious for three days. And I shouldn't have made it through. I mean, I should have lost my life. I was one of the lucky ones. It was a gift. I dodged a bullet in the biggest of ways. So after that, school was hard because I showed up in 10th grade in a difficult situation with a huge cast and platform shoe. And I was new at the school and I oh, had gone man. from 90 to 77 pounds. It was not a pretty sight. Yeah. And it was very difficult socially. So I thought, okay, I'll throw myself into work. But I didn't want to throw myself into schoolwork as much as other work. And do you think some of that, how would I say this, is um, almost like a genetic um, inherited trait that maybe you got from your father as well, this kind of go-getter mindset? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I found work was a place I could have control of my life and figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. Because one of the things we, we look to do on this podcast is, is you know, it's the Matthews mentality and dive into the mentalities and or mindsets of successful driven people. And, and one of the things is, is not just exploring what is that mindset or what is that mentality, but when did it first show up or how has it changed over the years? So it sounds like obviously we're going to cover how driven you were in in your professional career and, and the the success that led to, but it sounds like it really showed up perhaps maybe after this car. This yeah, car I think so. And I, I give my parents so much credit because they said, you know, we, we want you to be a worker <laughs> and they, they set it up that way. So I would be, and thank goodness they did. Right. Because it gave me, uh, it really made, it encouraged me to have jobs. I kind of had to. I mean, they stopped paying for my clothes and my entertainment when I was 16, which was fine and, and no allowance at that point. They thought you're old enough to get a paying job. So um, you need to do that. But I give them so much credit because sometimes parents need to to push their kids. And, let me, and they did. You have two kids? I only have two. Yes, I have two. So let me push pause on your story, on, you, you know, kind of going through your life real quick seems like maybe parents and I have four. And so I, they're my, well, my oldest is 13. So I'll give myself a pass here. We're not to the age yet, but maybe parents should, should push their kids a little more to, oh, have, to work absolutely. nowadays. It seems like that's not a, that's not as much a thing anymore. It's not a thing. And I, I struggle with it myself for my own kids. Cause I, I only have two, they're 23 and 20 and I did encourage it, but it's harder now because a lot more is expected at school. A lot more as far as school. Yeah. I mean, as far and as grades, extracurriculars. Sports, sports, sports is wild. Yes. I, I grew up playing four or five different sports, but there was no like 
full 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 year sport where you you know you you play year round and right. you go and get special you just you play the sport that was in season yeah then you have a break then you move on and so um but nowadays i've just noticed sports it's almost like a kid's full-time job in addition to school i was just talking to one of my neighbors and um his son who's a senior in high school just got deferred to a, a university he wanted to go to and he had a four nine I don't even know how you get above four, frankly. <laughs> I'm not sure I could have. I know I, think, I couldn't have, I think it has actually. something to do with AV classes that, yes, I, yes. that I never was invited to attend. <laughs> but also, like, he had a 1510 on his SAT. Wow. Which, you know, and I just... So it's almost like all this time that you or I would have spent working is now going into trying to overwhelm these admission offices with productivity in high school in addition to sports. So, but you know, if I may call it an art, the art of kind of fostering that entrepreneurial spirit while building that inde that independent um, streak within someone and also desire to be independent. It's very nice to be independent. It just seems to be lost in this generation. It does. And I think it's it's tricky and we mm, just, yeah. as parents, is, need yeah. to figure out how maybe a to balance instill it. Yes. Between those two. Yes, there may be a balance yeah. because, you know, had I not had the situation I was in and you yeah, who knows whether I would have been an entrepreneur ultimately. So let's talk about so high school, college. You you go to college at Trinity College. Yep. Okay, and tell me about that. So Trinity was wonderful, and related to the whole situation with the languages, is I back then was very practical, and I remember thinking I'm going to be a lawyer. That's a good job. I'll make good money. And I took um, for my freshman seminar something called Legal History of Race Relations, and it was super interesting. But I also determined by the end of that course, first semester freshman year, I would not be a good lawyer. <laughs> a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and making my case in court. I just didn't see it. So I thought, okay, that's out. And, you know, I, the cases, yeah, for me, reading those cases, not my thing. Okay. So then I kept studying, taking the languages, mm -hmm. loving the languages. And I remember calling my father up um, sophomore year and said, and saying, dad, tomorrow's the deadline um, for declaring our majors. And I don't know what to do because I'm loving taking French and Spanish, but what on earth am I going to do with them? And he said, just don't worry about it. Major in languages, pursue your passion and the rest will take care of itself. Wow. And thank goodness he said yeah, that, man. right? What great advice. Because a lot of parents push their kids to do what's practical. And I I think it's wonderful to pursue them. Or sorry, I think it's yeah. wonderful to push, push yeah, your kids it's, it's to pursue their saying, passion. I think we've said it on the podcast like before is, is that saying you've heard is like, find something you love, you never work a day in your life yes. type of deal. And so did you love languages and Oh yeah. Okay. So you get you you got your bachelor's in modern languages and literatures. Did I have that correct? I did. And I was fortunate to do my junior year in Spain and work in Venezuela right after college. So I could continue with my uh, focus on languages and getting better and better at Spanish. What did you do in Venezuela? So I got an internship at the financial division of a large Venezuelan company. It was actually a cement company called Ven Venezolana de Cementos, but it was part of a, a bigger holding company, which was actually the largest private company in Venezuela at the time. So it was interesting. And so how, how long were you down there? Four months. So Four not months. That long. And then you came back to Canada or the States? New York. New York. And I was 21 
And that's when I landed here. Did you graduate early or are you just younger? Yeah, I, I skipped a grade in Toronto, uh, eighth grade. But yeah, so I ended up here when I was 21, ready to embark on ready my career. Ready to take over the world? <laughs> or whatever I was going to do, right? And so so what did you do when you got here? So, and, and the funny thing is I was actually on my way to DC thinking that's where I'll find a job, doing something international. Sure. And I had friends there from college, mm -hmm. but I was visiting my sister who happened to live here. And she said, you know, Liz, um, Ogilvy, the company she was working at, the ad agency, she was working for their direct marketing arm. She said, they, they own a translation company. You might want to call them up and see if they have something for you. Thank goodness she mentioned that to me. You had a good sister. Yeah, great sister, because that was back in the day when there was no internet. There was no way to know what companies yeah, were out there. You have to get the paper and look in the classifieds, yes, right? that was exactly. I mean, this yeah. was 1987. Yeah, it was very inefficient. Yes. I mean, so the bottom line is I ended up getting a job there, and I was able to work first in production there and then in sales, and I absolutely loved it, and learned, really learned the industry. How, I loved it, but I thought it could be done better. How many years did you work there? Three and three critical years. Well, yeah. well, let's walk me through. What was your, what was your life like in those three years? Oh, it was so interesting. I had wanted to actually be in sales initially, but they didn't have any positions, but they said, we have a position in production. And I said, okay, can I take that and maybe perhaps move into sales later on? And they said, yes, maybe you can. So I started there in production production as a project manager, taking the projects from start to finish. And I remember my first day there. I literally got there, was busy, busy, busy working on the projects, stayed till two in the morning two on a big morning. project. And there were days when it was just incredibly busy, lots of work to be done. And I did it. And then I was able to move over to the sales side, which was equally interesting. And during my time there, loved it, loved the people, loved the industry, but thought it could be done better. And by being in both sit production and sales, I really saw You got to learn sides. both sides of yeah. it. What, what was your uh, work-life balance like those first three years? Yeah, that's a great question. I know question. they didn't talk about that at the time, but I tried. <laughs> that's know. right. They didn't. No. You just did what you had to do. That's right. Um, it, it was good. I mean, I worked hard. I mean, as I mentioned, the first day I stayed till two in the morning, but there were days when I got out at a reasonable hour and I worked some weekends, but not all. And it was good. And it was, it was very, it was good overall. It was a lot easier than when I started my company a few years later, but, um, it was good. And then I got to be friends with the people in the company because I really knew pretty much no one in New York at age 21. I think I had one friend here, um, maybe two from college. So, you know, when I got here, so then I got to know the people from work and it was very fun and it became social as well. So you were, you were at this company, you kind of had this blessing of getting to see both sides, right? Yes. Um, and when I assume in that period, did you decide, Hey, I think I want to go back and get my master's. Right. Right. Like, well, what was question. that process? Like so the reason I did is, you know, as I mentioned, I had majored in languages in college, which is not the most practical. Ultimately, if you want to know all there is to know about business or be marketable, I thought. And I thought, okay, I love this industry. I love this company, but it was a relatively flat organization. It was the largest translation company at the time, but it was only about 90 people. Hmm. And I didn't know really where I could go in that company, maybe up a level, but there wasn't a lot. It was to, hard I to see do. your professional uh, yes. growth, so to exactly. speak. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I thought, okay, I'll get my MBA because at Trinity, which was a liberal arts school, I didn't take finance. I didn't take marketing. I didn't take accounting. I didn't take entrepreneurship. They didn't have it, which at Trinity is fabulous. But I thought an MBA might give me the educational background that I could use to perhaps go into international banking mm -hmm. or international finance or international marketing or kind something else. Open more doors by making yes. yourself more marketable. Exactly. Perfect. And yes. so you chose NYU because you were in New York? Yes. And I really loved being in New York. Yes. I was a New Yorker at that point. You were a New Yorker and you liked the city? I did. And I do. <laughs> it was a little grittier back then, right? Yes. It yeah. was dangerous. I mean, it was more dangerous. I know people concern, are concerned about it now, but it was, yes, it, it was, was worse. Yeah. Uh, my wife's from uh, Westchester, Bronxville. So, oh, she is. Yeah. So not too far from where you, yes. you were from. But um, yeah, I'd, you know, talking with my in-laws and they said New York back then was a little little tougher than it is today. You're but, right. It yeah, changed. They've done a good job. Um, and hopefully get back to doing that. But, uh, yeah. so you're at, you're at NYU and you're getting a master's in finance and international business. Yes, exactly. You got okay. it. And so what are you, two years? Two years. And while getting your master's, did you, did you have any internships? Did you do anything outside school? I did. I, much like I had originally thought I, would, I should study law and be a lawyer. When I was in business school, I thought I should learn finance and do something in finance because I thought, well, there's more opportunity for advancement. I, I think it makes sense. It's practical. And I'm, maybe I'm a business person is what I thought. So the answer to your question is I had an internship at Moody's investor services. Yeah. Yeah. The rating yeah. agency and well, everybody knows Moody's. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I did that during business school. And by the time I was finished, I thought, okay, I'm finished. I've had enough of this. But yes. So this period of time, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a lot of women getting masters in finance and business. Would you is that is that a safe to say? You're absolutely right about that. Um boy, you really know your stuff. Well, I, you <laughs> no, know, you're I, right. Yeah. No, because at the time it was about 60% men in my class at Stern, 40% women. So majority men. That's higher than I yes, would have thought. Yes, but uh related to what you're saying is virtually all the women went into marketing. Okay. Or, right, yes. Gotcha. So yeah. to your point, there were very few getting that MBA in finance. Absolutely. And you, you had kind of touched on it earlier and maybe it hadn't happened as much or at all yet, but talk to me about some of those moments early on, whether it was um, your first job or, or getting your master's in finance, where you felt being a woman um, made it a, a greater challenge. You know, what's so interesting is in business school, I didn't. I didn't feel that way. And I remember there was something called Stern Women in Business, this big, you know, club mm -hmm. that we could have joined at NYU Stern. And I didn't join it because I thought, well, why do I need that? You know, it's about results. And I, you know, I, I have my friends that are women and I have my friends that are men and I don't need that. So and I didn't join. your experience join. thus far had been what we would call a meritocracy yes. where nobody cared. Yes, nobody cared. And I, there were a lot of women in my class and I thought it was unnecessary. So it was more later. It was later. And I definitely saw it um, in my first job out of business school. And yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about this a bit in my book, but basically I thought, okay, I will try this finance thing for the reasons I said. Yeah. And I got a job in the proprietary trading division. Well, of I was going to say bank. finance, trading. I mean, if there's a 
male dominated yeah, field outside true. of real estate. Yeah, but that's it. You're right. You know? it, absolutely. But I think the reason I took it is first of all, it was hard to get a job back then. This was sort of at the end of a recession, but it was still a recession mm -hmm. in 1992. So it was difficult to get a yeah. job. And this is where I got the job. And it was the proprietary trading division of a French bank. So I thought, okay, I've got the French thing sure. as a part of this. Maybe I'll get to do some international travel, um, all of that. So I showed up and on the first day I saw that I was the only woman in my role and there were men in my role, but I was the only woman. And whenever the phone rang, the guys would all yell, Liz, phone, because I was the woman. Not because that was uh, my job that I was hired for, but because mean, I was the when woman. When you show up your first day and you look around and it's all men, like what does your stomach drop? Like what happens? You know, I that didn't bother me as much because... I mean, I, I certainly would have loved to have had another woman mm -hmm. um, in a similar role to me or pretty much any other woman there. But I thought, I can deal with this. You know, I had never had an issue with it before. But, I, you know, I mentioned the thing about they expected me to answer the phone. They also expected me to order the supplies, get coffee. And, and that wasn't your role. Your, it wasn't what I was hired was the same for. as theirs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that was so an issue. What... What... what what was the process or what were the channels available, if any at all, for someone in your role to, uh, I don't want to say complain, but like call attention to the, there wasn't. <laughs> there wasn't. And because yeah. we were the proprietary trading division, it was actually a relatively small group. There wasn't even an HR person that I knew of quite. I mean, I'm sure there was at the, the large mm -hmm. French bank, but not as part of our group. So the person I had to go to was the boss, my, my boss who happened to be the boss of the whole, um, proprietary trading division. And I went to him and that's when he said, well, um, what I did is I worked very hard. I came in at seven, I worked till midnight. I, and I finished my work early and I said, what else can I do? And that's when he said, well, you can go around to the guys <laughs> and see what, what, supplies they would like you to order. So there wasn't anywhere to go. Hmm. But the truth is on all this, that was a part of it. But the other part of it was I learned very quickly that I didn't want my job, but I also didn't want my boss's job. I saw what he did all day. I observed and I observed and I thought, it's a lot of number crunching. It's a lot of paper pushing. It's very dry. This is so different from the translation industry. Yeah. And I'd love that. That's say. I say there's a difference between a job and a career. A career is something you really look forward to building. A job is just something you have to do. And yes. so it was more of a job for you. It felt like a job. And, and I understood, yes, the culture was not for me, but then also I quickly realized that doing that kind of work was and not for me. So this was, this was during or right after school? This was right after business okay. school. But during business school, isn't this where the idea At of trans... Oh, Oh, well, that, or even before business school. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because, so what happened is I worked for three yeah. years between college mm -hmm. and business school, and that's where the idea kind of percolated. But I figured I'd go to business school, sure. get another job, make some money, because how do you start a company with no money? I thought, or <laughs> so I thought. Yeah. So that was my plan. But when I felt like it was just, the days were so dismal at that yeah. job after business school, I, I thought, you know... Uh, I, what happened is after four weeks it, with that environment and that type of work, I said to my boss, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. How much time do you need? And he said, six weeks, uh, two weeks is fine. And after six weeks, I left that job and started TransPerfect. But, but I felt incredibly guilty, of course, because 
quitters never win and winners never quit. <laughs> that was my mentality. Yeah. And look what I was doing. So, so, uh, so, all right. So six weeks in, it's like, this is not for yeah. me. You immediately quit and start Transperfect. Talk to me about starting Transperfect, starting a company, going back to meeting your co-founder and the, the original idea, if you could kind of summarize it for a listener who may not know the translation business, sure. you know, in and out the way you do. Oh, sure. And in a nutshell, what we were doing is translating anything a client needed into a foreign language. And that was anything from document translation to oral interpreting to, well, later on website and software localization, but basically anything a client needed in a foreign language we did. And these were, you know, fortune, 100 companies, Fortune 1000 companies, the largest companies in the world that were doing international business. Like, for example, if IBM needed its annual report translated into 30 languages, we would do it. I mean, that's an example. Would you, back then, would it just be somebody sitting there typing from English to another language? Um, it was definitely very labor intensive back then, and yeah. there wasn't, uh, yeah, there certainly wasn't there AI. Wasn't there yeah. was not even machine translation no. back then, which came about later as we were growing the company. So it was very labor intensive, intensive. And our big differentiator as far as quality was having a translator, editor, and proofreader on every document and making sure we we're using people with the highest level of knowledge in the terminology, because whether it's financial, legal, pharmaceutical, et cetera. So when you started Transperfect, you just, you left this finance job and what happens? Do you, do you take a little office space? You work out of your apartment? Like what, walk, so, walk me through the first yes, couple okay. days of, uh, of yes. the company. So I was living with my boyfriend who I had met at NYU mm -hmm. Business School. He was a year behind me. So he hadn't graduated yet. He was in his second year at NYU Stern and I had graduated and we were living in a tiny one room studio uh, with a twin bed. <laughs> I mean, and it was tiny. It was to Washington Square Village was where it was, that too, that was the address. And that's where we started the company because we didn't have any money. I mean, I mentioned that I had my life savings, which at that point was only a few thousand dollars because I had used the money I'd made mm -hmm. for different things. And, and he actually had $90,000 in business school debt. Oof. So we were definitely in the red. They, were, they weren't forgiven school debt back then. <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> they, you know, that, it was a tougher time, right? Between yeah. the hours we worked and the, the, yeah, no forgiven debt. Yes. No, you had to pay off what you borrowed. You did. It's a crazy concept. Yes. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Um, so, so how did you get your, like, what's the first customer or client? Like, what, yes. And, when, to, and like yeah. you, we did it without funding, but, but I will say the first one, I remember it so well because we were making thousands of phone calls mm -hmm. a day or not, sorry, not a day, a few hundred a day. I was like, wow, our guys make a hundred a day. Uh, yeah, pretty yeah, good. yeah, no, 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 hey, no. We got to, we got to pick it up. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> so sorry, but we were holding ourselves to a high number sure. each day and meant And these are the cold calls. Yeah. Cold calls just yeah. to, to, but the answer is we, at this point, by the time we got that first job, we had called thousands of people, sent out thousands of letters. Now it might be emails or LinkedIn messages or whatever it is. letters cost money back then, you know. Oh, yes. Postage. Yeah. That's the other thing. You're right. Every, you're right. It, Startup costs. That's yeah. a very good point. People can do these things for free now. But the answer is um, the first call came in, and I remember it so well. They said, okay, can you translate this uh, document into Slovak? And it was a legal document. It was a small law firm asking us to translate a small document into Slovak. 
And I said, yes, Slovak, Slovakian, it's uh, yes. in the Baltic. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we did it. And I hung up the phone and I was like, oh my God, we are on our way. And you know how it is after thousands of phone calls and thousands of letters, that first client, oh, how it feels. It. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, the crazy thing, and since you're in commercial real mm -hmm. estate, which is what an interesting time for you with all yeah. that's gone on in the last few years, but back then office, having a nice office space or any office space was critical. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. I mean, you could not work from home. Yeah. Um, and anyway, the bottom line is after the project was done, we had it done in a few days. We would have done it faster. And is that something you you just did yourself? Well, no, we subbed it out to- Got it. Yes, okay. we had to. I mean, I don't speak Slovak. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, how do you yeah. even- Right. We And that's why the way the business- works is you, we ran a lean internal staff and then worked with a network of subcontractors or freelancers. And we had to, because we were dealing with 200 languages and yeah. every field. I was going to ask were there ever projects in order just to have a higher margin, you would take yourself, but maybe the opportunity cost of your time wasn't worth it. I don't well, know. in the early days, you're right. Every penny matters. As like you if know. it was French, right? Yeah. Or, if it uh, was Spanish, French, or... I could look at it from a proofreading perspective, mm -hmm. but even the translating and editing, I wasn't at the level. And where would you find your contractors? There was something back in the day called the American Translators Association, and they had a directory, but it didn't have a lot in it. I mean, it had a, a few hundred translators. So that was helpful. But then also people I had known from my days at mm -hmm. the other translation company. Um, and then calling up consulates. I remember when we needed for what ended up being a, a very important client, we needed to find someone with their PhD in geology who was a native Russian speaker who could translate into Russian. We found that person by calling consulates and yeah. embassies. But anyway, what happened with that first project is the client said to me, okay, great. Well, I'll come and pick it up and check out your operation. <laughs> I thought, you do not want to check out the operation. So I remember when she was to get there. At the time she was to get there, I ran downstairs a little early, intercepted her yeah. and said- I was going to say, what you, what you say is, you say, you know, our office is currently doing some renovations. Uh -huh. I'll meet you in the lobby and then pick the lobby of the nicest building. <laughs> Except <laughs> it wouldn't have matched the two Washington yeah, Square village point, address. Although we did say we were sweet to you as, a, you as opposed to apartment so, to you. So, so, so you, that you, you, got, the, yeah. you got your first sale, a customer- and she and showed then, up. <laughs> it did it. Well, and then the second yeah, one, and, and then the, what was so crazy about this is our second project and projects were few and far between back then. It probably yeah. took a couple more weeks or maybe I don't remember, maybe even a month to get our second project. And that client showed up too. And he didn't even tell me he was going to, he literally knocked on the dorm room door. So, um, something about back then everybody wanted to come to everybody's offices yeah. and check out the operation. How, how long would you say before it really started, um, rolling and, and, and not just from an incoming business or, or increasing uh, customer count, but also being able to afford your own office like yes. where, where so, you felt like it was, I, I don't want to say it wasn't from day one, but a le legitimate business where you're like, Hey, this might work. Oh yeah. Well, what happened was after those two episodes, not to mention another episode I talk about in chapter one of my book where I realized, Oh my God, we must get out of this dorm room. Um, I said, okay, it's about goals. So within six months, we're going to have enough sales to be able to pay for our first office. And it was right at the end of six months, 
the goal was accomplished and we were able to move into a real office building. But it took until the end of that six months to be able to do that. And then that office building that we did move into, the very first one, 315 Park Avenue South. I remember it very well. It was an executive suite, $625 a month. Park Avenue, that's a big address. Well, that was a big goal. So it's all about big goals, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, we we want to be on Park Avenue, right? But Park Avenue South back then wasn't as where you wanted to be as much as Park Avenue. But we took it and I was thrilled to find something for $625 a month, but it was a tiny executive suite, but we were on our way. You're on the way. And so what were those first couple of years like as a, as a founder, you know, and I don't just mean, uh, you know, talk to us about the, the psychology of, uh, survival, so to speak, yeah, when you're creating a business, right? That's what it is, right? And and you know this as well as anybody, but it's about resilience because it's hard. It's, it's just, hard. So, the days are so grim early on, right? Where you're making hundreds of phone calls a day, sending out hundreds of letters or emails or LinkedIn messages and not getting anything back. Mm. And you start to think, why am I doing this? You know, is this worth it? Is this ever going to feel like it's worth it? And that's how it felt. But then you get that first Mm -hmm. call and you think, okay, there's hope. And I think it's important for entrepreneurs to remember, even though it may be only one small project. I mean, in your business is very different, I I think, because it's a longer sales cycle, but then the the contracts are much bigger. I mean, it's a little more, it's a little different, but in ours, it might have been a small project, but that small project, if we spoiled the client with quality and service that would turn into multiple projects and the multiple projects would turn into a relationship with that client sure. and then also referrals from the client. And, and Right. And that happens in any business, but it's so hard in the beginning because they want, we would get questions like how big a company are you when we were in the dorm room? I mean, and back in those days, we couldn't even put up a nice website. So it was hard, but the answer is we, we stuck with it. And then we brought on amazing people. We focused on having a sales team and having the mm-hmm. biggest and the best sales team in the industry. And that, that would differentiate us and that would lead us so, to where we wanted to go. So many businesses nowadays, I don't want to, it's not a shortcut. There's a strategy behind raising capital and venture capital, seed, seed, seed rounds, you know, um, A, B, C's and D's and but when you're self-funded, you really can only grow as fast as the money comes in. Exactly. Talk to us about the challenges of um, what I'll say is there, there's two. One is money coming in and then paying your bills and what's left over for growth. But then the second is balancing, and this might be a little further in, whether it's three or five, seven, ten years, where you're like, okay, I've, I've given so much. Like, I'd like to take some of this, but if I sweep cash or if I take the profits, it's going to slow the growth and, and balancing those two, uh, two, two desires of like, Hey, I want to grow the business, but I also want to benefit from this, this effort I've put in. You're absolutely right. And it is a difficult call because I think in the early days and even for a long time, for years, perhaps in order to be successful, you need to reinvest in the company. It's the only way without funding, as you say, but you have to, and we didn't, we did it very slowly. And so we were lucky, but you do have to take a little out along the way because I've heard horror stories of entrepreneurs who didn't 
And then they kind of waited till the end, till they went public or until it was, they were so selling and it was time to cash out and it fell through and mm. something happened to the company, something happened to the industry and they didn't get what they should have or nearly what they, or they didn't get pretty much anything. Yeah. When, when you, so you have to take a little out. When you, when you're, how would I put this on it? When did you know that it wasn't just a legitimate business and you were going to survive, but what was the moment or what was the period of time maybe where you're like, wow, this could be pretty big. I think it was when we got, I mean, we got a couple million dollar clients sort of around the same time period in the mid nineties. And I remember one of them was we were doing a trial one page job that we didn't even realize was a test. We just thought we'll do it and we'll see what happens. We'll spoil them with great quality and service. That turned into a million dollar client. So that was around the mid nineties. Um, that was for Cypress Minerals Company. That's what it was called back then. It was for that joint venture in Russia that I was mentioning we needed the mm -hmm. Russian geologist. But also JC Penney became our first million dollar client yeah. when we were expanding into Latin America when they were expanding, sorry, into sure. Latin America, that was a huge moment. But then probably the biggest moment of those three was the year we went, and I think it was between 1996 and 1997, so about four, four and a half years into the business, we got um, a job from, well, it, it was from Debevoise and Plimpton and Sullivan and Cromwell, those law firms. And it was for the biggest... Um, corporate banking fine in U.S. history. Um, it was, Die was was getting fined. I mean, it's a longer story, mm -hmm. but it took us from $1 million to $6 million in wow. revenue in one year. And it wasn't all that job, but that was the biggest That's part of what job. took us. And that was the moment, we, four and a half years in. You said, this, yeah, might, this might work. This might work. If we can go from one to $6 million in a year, and we can't have so much concentration with so few clients, and those three that I mentioned were, the, probably the majority of that six million, you know, J.C. Penney, Cypress, and then the law firms. But we realized, okay, we can do something here. What was what was your mindset at this time? Were you just like in just kill mode, like we're gonna yes. I'm gonna take over the world? Yes. <laughs> that, no, I mean, I think that's what you have to be, and the way you have to be. You, in order to really make it happen, you have to be all in. As we said, you have to have big goals, and you have to have goals, of course. You, you know, know, dream uh, big and win. Dream big and win. But I'm such a believer in big goals. And and from the dorm room, um, I thought to myself, if I'm going to do this, I want to build the biggest and the best. And the reason I did is there were, at the time, thousands of translation companies out there. And I knew of other people who were starting translation companies from my time in the industry. So I thought, well, I don't want to do what everyone else is doing, so I have to do it differently and better. And that's when I started thinking, okay, how are we going to do it differently and better? So that was the goal. That was the plan to become the world's largest. And um, the other thing is, of course, you need to have the goals, right? I, one of the things I say in my book is only, I'm trying, okay, I want to say this right. Only 3% of people really state their goals, put them in writing. And those people on average make 10 times as much is the mm. other 97%. So it's all about yeah. having very specific it's not surprising. career goals. Um, since we're talking goals, one of the things, this is not unique to to my company or myself, but we always say it has to achievable, measurable, important, has to be something you can achieve on the front end. It has to be something that's important on the back end. The biggest one that I think people miss sometimes is that you have to be able to measure it because how do you know if you hit it or not? It's 
saying, Hey, my goal this year is to be a better dad. Okay. Right. And it's like, well, how would you measure that? I say, well, then, um, it's, I coach each one of my kids sports, right? I have a special day. You, yes. you have to take something that's subjective and make it measurable. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yes. I mean, like, quantitative goals, absolutely. Or in your, yeah. or those qualitative goals that you just a, mentioned. Absolutely. Another one is, uh, this is a little more intimate is, is share those goals with, you know, oh, your yes. friends, your family, your employees, assuming it doesn't involve them or your boss, assuming it doesn't <laughs> yes. involve him or her. Um, but is the more, and I could always, I'll speak for myself. The more people I can share it with, the greater probabilities I hit it. Cause I, I don't want them to know exactly. that I, that I didn't hit it. Right. Right. You, know? you don't want to make a public failure of yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. So exactly putting them on paper and then sharing them. Yeah. And we had our salespeople do that all along the way. Mm -hmm. And so they were all accountable publicly for their goals. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, I'm, I'm interested to hear your opinion, is the last thing we do is we actually change the word from goals to commitments. Because <laughs> like, you know, you think about what are my goals for the year? Goal for a lot of people is like, well, I hope I hit it. It would be nice if I do, but if I don't, it was a goal, right? <laughs> but, you know, let's say I have five goals for the year, but if even just a word choice would say, well, here are my five commitments. And then I share it with <sighs> you or with my, my, my coworkers or my, my wife or my spouse, my kids, like it just, the probabilities, you can start stacking all these different little wow. techniques. I found it increased the probability that I hit, I fulfill my commitments. Wow. That's powerful. No, I love that. And and then what happens if you don't make your commitments? Well, okay. So <laughs> that's that, powerful. I love it. I, uh, this is just my own personal, um, style. I, I, I don't know if I re recommend it. Depends on what type of person you are. I, there's a carrot and a stick. So the carrot is if I fulfill my commitment, if I hit my goal, right, I reward myself. It could yes. be it could be a thing that I purchase. It could be a trip. It could be time off. Whatever it is, yeah. like whatever it is that I would feel guilty if I just did. So I need to earn it. That's my carrot. A stick is a punishment. Sometimes punishments for me. Most of the time, punishments are funny. Like I have to embarrass myself somehow. I have to. I'll give you an example. I have to go to an open mic night at a comedy club and tell jokes, which <laughs> I'm not funny and I don't have jokes <laughs> or you, karaoke night, something that Ooh. I would dread doing that isn't terrible for my life, but I certainly, it will create, because I've found in managing people, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is there are days where people are motivated by carrots and there are yeah. days where people are motivated by sticks. There are days people are motivated by the opportunity to do something great. And then there are days people are motivated by the fear of loss of a of you know something as, as even as much as of a job so for me it's a balance is if i if i only motivate myself from rewards there'll be days that i'm like ah, i don't really need that i'm not that motivated but also if you only motivate yourself through punishment that's no fun that's that's kind of a bad way to manage even even manage yourself so for me it's a balance um and yes if i don't fulfill my commitments i will be telling stand up <laughs> so I will be doing stand-up comedy at the local comedy store. So let's hope that I fulfill my commitments this oh, year. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Anyway, that, that's, we're talking about no, goals. No, but that's actually really interesting. That commitments is a great it's a thing great to word. call it's a great word, word instead of goals. I love that. Speaking of management, how would how do you think? And maybe people have shared this with you. People would have described you, you as as the manager, as, a, as the boss lady in that period of hyper growth. Would they say, "Oh, she, she was intense"? Was it? How, how would, how do you think they would? Yeah, that's a great you? question. And it's so interesting because I remember in the early days, I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, because I had managed one person my entire mm -hmm. career. I had one person reporting to me at that other translation company. So it was a lot of trial and error. And I, 
I just didn't know. And I remember, and this is, see, this for a younger audience, this might not resonate, but I used to watch Melrose Place oh, and yeah. Amanda Woodward, if you're Heather Locklear, if you remember who that's. She's that, my, uh, see, my dad's sister. Oh my gosh. My dad's step. Through marriage. Oh my God. But yes, I, I have, I have spent um, a lot of time around Heather Lockley when I was a kid. Oh, but anyway, yes. Oh my I, goodness. So she might've been in that role when yeah. you spent that time with she her, was, right? Yeah. Anyway, so the I, thing I'm that not, was, I, I, no, but the, what was so crazy is actually watching Melrose Place. I don't was, think anyone knows that by the way. That is so interesting. Yeah. Anyway, she, you learn something every fabulous day. because what happened is that was our reward when we were working crazy hours in those early days. And this was back in the day when you couldn't just watch something whenever you wanted on demand or however you do it. Now, we had a friend tape it, videotape it while we were working. And then we would watch it like on the weekend as a reward. My boyfriend and me at the time, who's my business yeah. partner, but she was the boss and she was a tough boss. And in her company yeah. and she was stylish. So, you know, everyone wanted to be her. She was powerful. But she took no prisoners. She took no prisoners. And that's who I was trying to emulate, not knowing what well, I was doing, that, but that didn't work again, very I, well. I don't want to stereotype, <laughs> push back, but at that time there weren't a ton, or d definitely not as many today as um, aspirational female professional leaders, even oh, if it was a TV show, right? Right, there are almost none. And yeah. so, you know, they always say you have to see it to be it. Mm -hmm. And that was who we saw. So that's who I was trying to be. And that didn't work very well because well, I we had a lot of turnover in those yeah. early days. Yeah. I didn't quite do it right. And so I was very tough, very aggressive, but not human enough, not kind enough. And not, that was yeah. something that you learned over time to yes. kind of find the balance of, yes. look, if, let, let's be honest, if you're too nice, that doesn't work either. It doesn't work. Yeah. And if you're too tough, I think over time, that, that could work probably for a little longer, but over time, you know, there's a, there's a great um, poster I saw. It's like the, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right. And right. it's like, that doesn't work that either because eventually people just, uh, number one, they find other jobs and professions, oh, yeah. but they just tune you out. So, um, for sure. Would you say there was an evolution in your yes. management style? Absolutely. And I learned over time and I talk about this in my book, but the one-on-one -on -one meetings mm -hmm. with direct reports and not always direct reports, people who reported to pe people who reported to me, um, or whatever, to really understand what a person was going through, what they wanted, their feedback. And then also, um, yeah, make sure they felt like they were clear on their goals or their commitments in order to, to no, you can say goals. No, no, I love it. In order to grow with the company. So yes, the one-on-one -on -one meetings, really knowing the people who worked with us was critical. So mid nineties, you have this what, 95, 96 this year, one to 6 million. And that's yeah. such a massive jump in yeah. revenue. It, it just in terms of a percentage, right? Yes. And then later nineties, two thousands, I'm, I'm at your, Companies just still rapidly growing. Yes. When did you have, when did you guys go global per right. se? Right. So then it was a couple of years after that, around the time we got to about 10 million in revenue, um, that we started going global. Mm -hmm. At that point, we had opened a number of offices in the US and we said, okay, the way we're going to get to over 100 offices around the world, which was our goal, um, is one at a time. And we did London, we did Paris, and how, it, yeah. How'd you navigate? And I, how would you navigate the different uh, business climate in terms of leg uh, legalities, legislation, rules in each? I assume it's much harder. Yeah, you, you, you hired uh, consultants who say, yes. "Hey, this is how you set up an entity. This is how you hire people." 
This is how you set up payroll. You know, it wasn't even consultants because we did, you know, we always operated in an incredibly frugal way. We never hired consultants ever the whole way because consultants are expensive. <laughs> but yeah. we, the answer is, you're right, it was much more expensive and challenging or, or difficult to open an office in a foreign country. And so what we did is we hired an attorney from that country, of course, and an accountant from that country, and we worked with them mm. to set it up. But those were additional costs. Even that executive suite that we opened yeah. in other cities was a lot more expensive than uh, an executive suite here in the U.S. And then sometimes we started with, well, sometimes one person in office, but sometimes as many as two. And that would be more difficult too. It would be more difficult to find the people and we might have to pay them more. And then the labor laws were more yeah. difficult. There wasn't always at will employment where you could terminate with no notice and no severance. I mean, which, you know, is expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. And then those countries will wonder why their GDP doesn't grow. Right, right. Um, or no companies are founded in those countries. <laughs> so, I assume your international travel picked up around this time? Yes. Yes, it did. On one hand, that's a perk. It's exciting. It's certainly like, oh, I get to go to London or Paris or wherever. But on the other hand, and this is actually, I want to pivot a little bit in the conversation to, if you don't mind your home life, like it's around this time you had your children, correct? It is. And that was, that was a struggle. I mean, yeah. I, I, it was a very different time. Our company didn't give maternity leave and it was not such a common thing back then. I mean, some companies did, the top company, the big companies did, but we didn't. And I wasn't well set up to go on it as far as having the right backup, the right systems in place. Even though at that point we had about 150 full-time employees, it still wasn't quite right. And that's why one of the things I talk about in the book is succession planning. Because even as we become, became bigger with thousands of employees, I didn't know if we always had a backup to the person in every role in you know, all of those senior roles or, or any role. And so that, that was critical. But the answer, long answer to your question is I certainly tried to manage my hours better during those days, but it was tricky. When was my that, kids was were that young. the first time in, really since you founded the company where you found yourself consciously throttling down the hours yes. for work yes, because you were, I mean, early on, like a, there's a little human who relies on you to stay alive. Absolutely. But and, and, and I did, I did figure it out, but was that, was that, that was hard on you? It yeah. was hard. It was hard because I hadn't thought it through and made sure we were set up right before I had the mm. kids. Of course, now looking back, I would have, but we just weren't there. There were issues. We hadn't set everything up right. So, and you know, it's tricky when you're an entrepreneur sometimes because with, for example, the accounting, I was still signing every check and you know, that type of thing, it can be a difficult thing yeah, to delegate. Not scalable. Yeah. So the answer is yes, I learned. And then as the kids got older, I also learned that you have to compartmentalize. You have to be super intense during the day, whatever time you start, eight or eight thirty or nine, be super intense and then cut it off at the end of the day, whatever it is, I five, five thirty six. Yeah, I, I um, you know, Superman, the the character, he you know, goes into the phone booth and puts on his cape and go becomes Superman and then he goes back in the phone booths. Yes. Takes off his cape. Yes. And he's like just that. Clark Kent and he's in a suit. Yes. And so I've always I've always um 
looked at my life is when I walk out the front door, I become dad. The, well, or, or walk, the other yeah, way around. No, excuse yes. me. Yeah. When I walk out there, I go <laughs> the into, yes. you know, kind of killer entrepreneur yes. version of me. And then, you know, I metaphorically take that off right before I come in the door and I just become silly, fun dad. Yes. I love the way you put that because that's exactly how it is. And I, did you find yourself? I was do doing that? that too. And, but I learned it over time. I didn't plan it that way, but of course that's what you have to do. And the other piece of it related to it that I did learn that was super important is you need to, as best you can, stay off email, stay off text, stay yeah. off your computer. Once you get home, Harder. yes, it's so hard now, especially now with everybody the, working with remotely. The, the, I know with those phones, the cell phone was, Oh, the it's the worst. But I found if I, first of all, I didn't want to be on it at night mm. and all weekend, but also the employees that if they saw I was on it all the time, they didn't want to work for me. They didn't want my job. They didn't want a manager's mm. job. They, they don't want to see it. It's very demotivating if they see me never taking a break. Certainly I've seen it with my wife and four kids. It, 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 children is very physically hard. Right. And yes. then, but man, emotionally, there's something about, you know, I speak as a father, you know, when you're working a lot, you, you certainly have a guilt like, oh, I got to get home. But I feel like it hits women almost harder in the oh, sense, like especially 20, 25 years ago, it wasn't as common that you would have highly driven career women in your role. Um, talk to me about the psychology and, and, or the, the, you know, kind of the internal battle mentally that maybe you went through, like I did. where you're, you're home with your children, which probably in some way feels good. You're like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a mother, but you have this pull to say, but, but I need to, I need to push. I need to go conquer. I need to be successful, but then you're working and you're doing that, but then you have this pull home. Was it, did you? It was very tricky. And it was tricky because we were not set up in a way that worked well for women. We weren't. I mean, my partner was a man. He wasn't married. He didn't have kids, my business partner. Mm -hmm. So that didn't help quite honestly, because he, you know, could work day and night, stretch it out, you yeah. know, not have to be super intense and then be off. So that was one issue. And then we had a lot of men in senior leader positions, senior management positions. So, and their wives were at home. They were in traditional marriages. And so that wasn't good. So it was tricky. And of course, therefore we need more women in these leadership roles. So we can set it up together in a way that works for everyone. And I know we're in a whole different place now. I was going to say, I, oh, we're would in a you whole say it's, it's better now than, I, I, I think I knew it's the better answer. At, I mean, it's better. I know it's, yeah. it's better everywhere now. I mean, I was just talking to someone at UBS this morning. They now have this 20-week uh, parental leave policy, and it's for women. It's for mothers and for fathers and for, you know, any parent. So the reason that's so important is then there isn't this disadvantage for women putting them in a leadership role because they're going to take the leave. So are the men, they get it too. <laughs> so, well, you I know, as an entrepreneur, there is no, uh, there's no maternity or paternity leave unless no. you choose to take it. And right. if you choose to take it, the, your business doesn't move forward that's that right. day. And that, that's one of the challenges. I, Absolutely. all my kids were born on Thursday. I took Friday off and I was back uh, to work Monday for all of them. Same. You know, I mean, not those days, no, but, but yeah. yes. And yeah. no, and that's why as an entrepreneur, if you can set it up so you have someone who can take well, over you, for you when yeah, you, you go had, through you had, that. You had used the word uh, succession. And oh. certainly, I mean, that is super important, especially as 
the company truly becomes big. But I, I also use the words, you know, scalable is like, because an individual is not scalable. It's like, you need to be able to not have to do something and still get it, have it get done. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, you know, I say that to entrepreneurs that, you know, don't obviously have companies, anything like yours, but where they, they have a great idea. They have a great business, a great infrastructure, even on the back end, but they are the salesperson. Yeah. That's obviously you can't scale a company. It's the way. entrepreneur's dilemma, is, it as is. they call it, is um, you know, and and sometimes this is very much true that the best at everything, but if they are always doing everything, the company doesn't grow. But that's right. All right, but your company did grow, yes. and you did find a way to create successions and scaling. And now I'm going to fast forward some years here. You're in the mid, you know, the. 2010s. I don't, is that what we call that decade? The yeah, 2010s. I think so. That sounds good. And uh, you have a partner, and is was there? Was it just creative differences eventually? Where you, there are a lot of differences. Yeah, yes. no, I just <laughs> and yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. I mean, originally he was my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Then he became my fiance. Then we broke up after five years. But at that point, the company had taken off. We yeah. were about. Six million dollars in revenue, and as we know, that's by far the hardest part getting from zero to one, zero to one, yeah. or six. Oh, my goodness! Yes, so exactly. So, the answer is we ran it together for all those years, but yes, and was we, it pretty functional throughout that time? Uh, relatively, I mean, we yeah. definitely had our disagreements. Um, and we even did something for part of it where we start, started a second division called translations.com. He ran that, I ran Transperfect, but then we ended up merging the two back together. Okay. And uh, we we had a lot of issues because we did not have a tiebreaker. We did not have a clear decision-maker, yeah. arbiter. He and I basically needed to agree on things or certainly the big things. I mean, as you far each as- each had a veto. Yes, yeah. and that was a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you didn't see eye to eye, the ability to persuade the other side can be very challenging. It can be, because you each go your separate ways and you have, yeah, separate priorities. You guys, I mean, look, you managed to do it well for a long time given where eventually the company got to and is. But so walk me through, it's 2017, I guess, 2018. And it was it just enough, like, we, this can't go on. Oh, it like, was 2013. 2013. <laughs> it was 2013. It was after about 20 years. That's right, prison. because there were, yes. there were some years of litigation. 2018 yes. was the The, the year we sold. Yeah. Yes, yes. That was okay. when, but the answer, 2013, it started getting very difficult. Mm. Um, we didn't have a shareholders agreement, which I, I, when I give recommendations to entrepreneurs, of course, you need a good shareholders agreement. A good one, though, because I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs now, and they have one, but there are actually some things missing from it. So that's a whole other conversation. You need a good attorney when mm -hmm. you start the company, if you have partners, and you if you have investors, you tend to have this anyway. But that's the thing you, with founders. I right. Mean, you we, know, but they go, if, well, hey, give us that problem. We'll figure exactly. it out. Exactly. We should be so lucky that there's something to sure. fight over. And we didn't, as I mentioned, we were in the red. We didn't have money to spend on a on no. an accountant, on a lawyer. No. So we didn't, but I say you need a good shareholders agreement and you really need to work it out before there's something mm -hmm. to fight over. And and before you stop getting along, before you start fighting about um, even the day-to-day. -day. So, okay. So anyway. So it's 2013 and you're yeah. like, 
you know, again, money's great, but there's probably a quality of life component that comes in where you're like, I, I don't enjoy this anymore. That's I mean, precisely like, yeah. what happened. And there were some wonderful things that had been over 20 years. Yeah. And you know, all of the wonderful things that happen when you're an entrepreneur. And, you know, in the early days, it's, it's, it's the excitement of yeah, those magical. first clients. It's magical. Even the hard things after a couple of years, they almost become like, man, remember how hard it was? And you find yourself smiling, telling this story. Like, right. wait, why am I smiling? Like, it was brutal. It's it was like, brutal. I don't know. It seemed like- But you have you, fun. You romanticize you all romanticize, of it. You romanticize. You have your stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And then what happens in that middle point, which is so amazing, is you bring in people. You may bring them in right out of college and you can tell they're smart, you they're see motivated. They're, pardon me? You see them grow in their yeah, careers. Yeah, yeah. They're overachievers. It's very you fulfilling. See, yes. And they come in entry level and- they may be managing 50 or 100 people no, um, in a few years. And that's incredibly rewarding. And and you learn from them too. You, you, yeah, you Sometimes you're in a position like, hey, you know, you come here because early on, what are you really selling, right? You're selling a dream. And so you walk them through this dream that, of dream life that they could live. But deep, you're like, I don't know if that's actually. And then fast forward 10, 15 years, they're like, oh my gosh, like it actually happened. That's there's right. This, there's a satisfaction in that. So much. It becomes as much about their people that yeah. you're working with in their careers as anything else. And that's mm -hmm. fabulous. But then you get to a point when you're having partnership issues where you feel like you don't have you the freedom couple, and you want. you got a couple hundred million dollars staring at you in the face. That, yeah. <laughs> that and, and you think- That what, whole thing. <laughs> no, you're right. And you think, okay, I only need so much money to be happy and to do everything I've always wanted to do. So now how do I want to spend my time? Cause it's mm -hmm. not about more money. Right. And that, and you get to that yeah, point. Yeah. Cause like, you know, it's, um, there, you, you touched on it. There's a, there's a certain amount of money and I call it financial independence where yes. I mean, unless you really, you almost have to work hard to screw that up. Like you, you'll never need to work again yes. should you choose. Right. And, and so you were at this point and, um, and it was time, especially from a quality of life from an enjoying and the, you know, the litigation. And, and yes. so maybe cliff note that period of time and, and what happened, why it happened and then what it led to. Well, I mean, in 2013, my partner and I weren't getting along and I was not enjoying every day anymore. Yeah. I wasn't. And that contributed to it, of course. But, um, and I only say this because maybe it's helpful to people if they're starting businesses, if they have partners, because we didn't have a shareholders agreement and I couldn't get one at that point, I did need to bring in attorneys mm -hmm. to, uh, Basically, um, I needed to litigate to resolve deadlock. I'm sorry, I needed to litigate to bring in what I asked for. Sorry, what I asked for was a custodian to be put in place to resolve deadlock in the short term and oversee the sale of the company in the longer term where I could buy him out, he could buy me out, or a third party could buy us both out. So I went through that process. We litigated, lots of drama. Lots of heartache. Mm -hmm. And um, then I got what I asked for in that litigation. And we got the custodian to resolve deadlock in the short term and oversee the sale of the company in the longer term. Got that ruling in 2015. And then in 2018, I sold the company. But I mentioned that you need that shareholders agreement because had we had one that had that. So it would have saved some attorney's fees, that's for sure would have saved $50 million Ugh. in attorney's fees. <laughs> and I think that's really important. And also the challenges and heartache of litigating and litigating publicly and litigating when you have thousands of employees and thousands of clients that are being 
affected by what's going on. Yeah. So um, you need that shareholders agreement because if we'd had a proper shareholders agreement, we probably could have avoided the litigation. Yeah, attorneys yeah. always win, right? <laughs> yeah, although I'm obviously, ultimately, I was quite a winner because I'm so lucky. Oh, I mean, a winner course, yeah. because, you know, we talked about the things that yeah. you need to do in the mindset, but also, of course, there's an element of luck involved. I met the right people. My timing was fortunate sure. and all of that. So, um, yes, so life is good. We touched on this at the very beginning of this conversation is this big, this event and... Um, what, I mean, what happens? Is it just you get a wire one day and you yes. check? Yes, <laughs> that's actually you exactly log into what, your Wells Fargo and it just wow. Okay. Yes, I remember my lawyer. I remember him. He said the money is in. Check the accounts. The money should be in, and it was in. Yes, or check the account. And yes. so you know, early you said certainly financial relief, right? Oh yes, and, and um, freedom. Yeah, freedom. Freedom, and you know, freedom. You can have it if you're an entrepreneur and you're calling all the shots. And that's mm -hmm. why I mentioned the importance of a shareholders agreement. I also mentioned if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you have partners, it's nice if you can be the decision maker because it can be tricky if you're not mm -hmm. when you did it to control your own life. I mean, but the answer is yes, uh, financial independence and freedom. It's, it's very rewarding. And so with that freedom, you chose to start the Elizabeth Elting Foundation. Yes. Talk to us about that foundation and where you focus yeah. your energies there. Yeah. So it was liberating, but I also knew how lucky I was and am because as I mentioned, I was right place, right time, hired great people. And a lot of people don't have the good fortune that I did. I had parents that encouraged uh, working and education and they paid for my education. And a lot of people don't have that. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, born in the wrong zip code to the wrong family with the wrong background. So what the foundation does, what we do is we, we, um, support you know, scholarships. You know, we, we invest in, or we donate and invest in scholarships, entrepreneurships, public health, um, hunger, gun safety, but it's really above all, um, you know, to make the world a, a more, you know, a better place for all, mm -hmm. you know, equality for all, because do we're you, the lucky one. Do you focus a lot? And I, I think I know the answer to this on women in the workplace, yes. given that was such a yes. big and component Yeah, I didn't mention that. And the reason yeah. I just mentioned all those other things we're doing is the mission of the foundation is actually to help support and empower women mm -hmm. and people from marginalized and diverse communities. And that is our core mission. And that's so much of what we do. But what I found that's happened is I've gone through this process with the foundation is I keep meeting people, other people and seeing other needs out there, other gaps that and need to be filled. So then we get into others. But the answer is it is pr primarily to support women and people from marginalized populations. And we do it largely through education and entrepreneurship. Hmm. And, you know, because I think both entrepreneurship and education are the great equalizers. I mean, if you, you know, if you can put some money into that and support someone with their doing that, then they yeah, can, they can get without education. It's hard to have entrepreneurialism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if they have a great business idea, but they are worried if they are an entrepreneur, they can't put money on food on the table and they just need a little head start. That entrepreneurship can, can put them in a different situation too. And I, I say economic power is social power and social power is political power. And that's how we change the world and make it a fair in and better place. In looking back at 
the success you've had in your career and and really the drive required to have to have achieved it respectfully yes luck is always um a factor no doubt and you you listed out how you were lucky um but certainly i mean you worked very hard to achieve it what what do you think kind of the overarching drive throughout your career was that just pushed you to keep going and keep going and keep going i think you know, I think it's good to have a huge goal, a big goal. And because I had the big goal with TransPerfect to make it the world's largest language solutions company, there was always more to do to get there. And part of why it took us 25 years, by the way, is we funded it internally, mm -hmm. as we talked about, we bootstrapped it, but then also we didn't grow through big acquisitions. We didn't do a roll-up, which a which nowadays that's that's almost all growth is right. just that yeah, rolled up right and that's what other companies when they came about in our industry after we started in the mid 90s and late 90s that's what they were doing so it took us 25 years because that's not how we did it i mean we made small acquisitions but they didn't yeah. have a lot of revenue attached to them so the reason i'm saying that is we had the big goal and then it was about not being complacent but thinking of that goal as you say is a commitment and not stopping until we accomplish that goal why i meant why why such a big goal was it um was it you're trying to solve for something or trying to fill some sort of hole you felt like or prove something to somebody well there was a hole in the industry because the reason we started the company is there were other translation companies out there but what i found at the first company i worked at they were not service oriented enough they did not they were not fast enough they didn't have a full range of deliverables they didn't have offices around the world and they didn't have sales and production on the same team. So I wanted to create a company that did all those things. And in order to do that, we needed to be pioneers in our industry because the competition was largely uh, started and run by linguists mm -hmm. who were doing the translations and also running the company. And you can't scale a company and be a top tier, you know, service oriented global company it, yeah. if you're doing the translations, you just can't. So, so that was the gap. That was the gap. I, was, I guess my question is why such a big goal to why? be the yeah. best ever? And and what I say yeah. is, and again, I'm going to generalize. I think a lot of people, they're like, yeah, you know what? I want to do something great, something big. But the truth is I want to get a good job, yeah. make more money than I spend, yeah. have, a, have a nice, comfortable life. Why were you not like that? Yeah. And I think that's, that's great too. So, you know, who am I to say, what I did was a better way. I, I think I just, I've always been very goal oriented and I've always wanted to, I guess, prove that I can do it and that I can do more. So it's in your nature. It's just in my nature. And I guess, you know, how do you explain that? I guess I just feel like, sure, you can do it one way or you can be the best or, or mm. do your best to be the best. And it's just fun to win. I guess it I am incredibly, I mean, you being an athlete and now a, a, an incredibly successful entrepreneur, sure, it, it's fun to win. I, I guess I have always been incredibly competitive and have loved the thrill of winning. And so what, what is winning for you today? Yeah. I mean, so now at this point, it's, it's sharing my knowledge based on what I did right and the many, many, many things I did wrong. And so I make an impact on others to achieve their dreams, you know, through, you know, for entrepreneurs. And that's why I love speaking about entrepreneurship and then helping people who, who were born into a situation that I wasn't, that I could have been right. 
you know, as we talked about, you know, wrong sharing zip code, blessings. wrong. Yeah, some of it's sharing lessons, and then some Sorry, of it's blessings, but lessons. Oh, blessing. Oh, yeah. And lessons. Well, sharing yeah. lessons, lessons. Lessons and blessings. And blessings because some people just didn't have the good fortune yeah. of being born in the right situation. And why should they have a, you know, why shouldn't they have as good a life as the people who were born mm -hmm. to the right family in the right situation. So it's, I guess it's about giving back now and making the world a better place than, than what I was born into. And I know it, it sounds awfully corny. It really does, but it is really gratifying when you feel like you're yeah. helping other people who haven't had the opportunity to have type of income. It's not a, yeah. it's a, it's a kind of income for the soul, so to speak. Yes. And because you get to a point where threshold level of money that you need, and then you're feeling good. Then winning, you you love winning, but okay, you feel like you won enough in that area. And now winning is making a difference for all the people who didn't have the chances you did. If you had to go back and give your younger professional self a piece of advice, looking back, um, you know, for all of our younger listeners, let's say they're, I'm just making up an age 22, 32, like they're kind of newer into their careers, let's call it. And uh, what, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I feel like you should figure out what you love doing and then find a way to make money at it. And because I know that's what I got to do. And it sort of was put right by my good fortune, like not because I was so amazing. I just was lucky that I found it. But mm -hmm. if you don't happen to find a job doing it and then see the gap, really think about it and think, what would I love to be doing? And then figure out a way to get pay, paid for it. And then don't, um, you know, think everything has to be perfect, that you need to get all, do all the research in the world and know that it'll work. Because some people do years and years researching and figuring out the market and should I, shouldn't I? Don't let, just, per don't let perfect be the enemy. Of yes. Good, just you know? go for it. And then last thing is if you are starting a company, I'm such a believer in doing it the way you did it and the way I did it, where you bootstrap it, where you don't focus on getting investors, but you just focus on sales, 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 relationships, yeah. relationships, relationships, because you're going to have to get that revenue and profit later anyway. So just do it from the get-go. That's where you should yeah, put your I, efforts. I, I couldn't agree more and co-sign on that where it's, uh, I would say it's probably a little harder and slower, at least the growth it early is. on. But it is. What I've found, <clears throat> I'm sure in your industry, in the translation industry, um, the real estate industry, any industry, there are going to be peaks and there are going to be valleys. Valleys being, let's just call it a recession in, within your industry, whatever that industry is. And the challenge I've seen when you have outside investors is they just either don't understand the business or they aren't committed to it the way you are or I am or a founder is. And so when it gets hard because they're not in it their, their money's in it but they aren't in it the way you are in it they'll pull the plug they'll say okay time to sell or you're like hey this is what we have to do to get through this recession actually come out stronger we actually have to run a negative cash balance we gotta we gotta invest further and they're just they don't have the heart to do it and um yeah i just think self-funding a company again the first five years probably a little harder but in terms of control and the ability to stay the course yeah, control, and you can focus on long-term yeah. goals rather than short-term goals. And finally, you then you know you have the revenue. You're not spending money on things you don't have. And I talk about that a lot in my book. You you develop a culture of oh, yeah. of thriftiness. You yeah. have to, but it it works better for we the company's always, we success. We can always tell in commercial real estate. We can always tell the the 
the venture capital funded companies versus the self-funded based on the, uh, the office improvements. Like right. you walk into an office with $150 square foot TI built out, like just the most amazing office. They got other people's money. Yes. You walk into an office that that's functional, but it's, it, it, all it does is provide the basic ability for the company to execute its business. That's self-funded. It's Absolutely. very different. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that was how we operated the whole time. And I th think that's so critical. And I, I talk about that because yeah, 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 you don't spend money. You don't have, and then the last thing I'll say is take the risk. People call it a risk, but you know, it's a risk not to, right? Because you could end up never having, yeah, never I, knowing I think, if you could have a lot more made your dreams come true. Later in their life have said, man, I regret not starting that business than people who say, man, I regret starting oh, that business, yes. right? I love that. Absolutely. Because worst comes to worst, it doesn't work out. You've learned a oh, ton. You've, so much. you've yeah, met you've so many so amazing people and there's a good chance it will work out. And if it doesn't, then okay, on to the next business. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I like to say is work Please. today like no one else will. So you can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. And that means like be intense, be all in, put other things aside, make it your focus, make it your addiction. I mean, obviously you have your family too, so you've got to yeah. be incredibly efficient, but, but make it what your life is about during that period of time and don't be all over the place. Yeah. I have a a less eloquent saying, it's a, in order to live this life, you have to live that life. And this life ah. is a life of, you know, the the big homes and the private jets yes. and all the fun things that people think they aspire to have. But in order to live this life, you got to live that life. Yes. And that life is the life you lived yes. in your 20s and 30s and 40s where you're, you're working 80, 100 hours a week, some weeks, you're traveling nonstop, trying to win clients and, and, and execute business. You are sacrificing time with your children while trying to be the best mother for me, a father you can be, but still pushing the business forward as a founder. I mean, ultimately it does, it does come back to you. So in order to live this life, um, I don't know how else you can do it than have to live that life. And so exactly, yeah, exactly. it's the same principle. And, I love uh, that. I think, I've never I think heard it said of, that way. I love that. I never heard it said that way. I like your way. Your way is a little more eloquent, but, um, you know, and I think I think this is not unique to this generation of young people. I think every generation of young people has um, mismanaged expectations at times. But um, I think a lot of uh, younger professionals who are getting it, or even entrepreneurs, they think they can kind of have it both ways. And just my experience, and it sounds like your experience is like um, maybe over a long enough period of time, certainly, but in the in the context of building a company and scaling and being an entrepreneur and ultimately achieving the success you did there there are sacrifices that you have to make and, and there has to be delayed gratification absolutely absolutely but you got your gratification that's awesome and your foundation i always ask the question at the end like a very practical question for our audience is there a specific in addition to your book um is there a specific resource uh, book anything that maybe you think is an absolute must have for anyone looking to, to really build a business, grow in their career, achieve success. Another book? <laughs> no, because well, I, no, no, I do. And the only reason I say yeah. my book is because the reason I wrote the book, it's the book yeah. I wished I had had when I was in my twenties, when I was reading every business book I could get my hands on. And even throughout, throughout, I, it would have been handy, but so another. So dream oh. big and win by Liz Helting. <laughs> That's number one. And, I mean, what other books? I mean, there's some, there, there are a lot of good books out there. I don't know there. if there's something maybe, maybe when you were younger that yeah. 
you you discovered well, or fell into where you're like that made a big difference well for me at the back time. in the day there were a couple books but these were more from a long time ago but the uh, the concepts were okay one was swim with the sharks by harvey mckay which was all about sales and really knowing your customer and mm -hmm. making your customer your best friend and and letting them know you would jump in front of a bus for them and and knowing their interests their friends their families like really getting close to them because then they become raving fans and you know that that's very important yeah because the concepts of scales is oh yes is hasn't changed at all it's, right, it's that building concept. meaningful relationships with your clients yes and initially starting that relationship out by demonstrating how you can help them achieve their goals. Whatever yes, those are. and their goals, certainly with whatever service you provide. But then if you all kind of are interchangeable in what you're providing, which a lot of businesses are, letting them know you care about other things that are important to you. And like I say this, for example, when people are managing my money and they're all delivering about the same numbers, if they are then do they understand what's important to me at this point in my life? And are they proactive? Are they proactively finding out? And then are they helping me with it? I mean, that's an example, but sorry. So the whole sales piece of it, really knowing your clients and acting like you work inside their company. I mean, that's the concept. So that's one book that I loved. Another was called Double Your Profits. And that was very important in the good. early days. Yes. And now, because it was written a long time yeah, ago, so, yeah. it a lot of the concepts don't work because that was back pre-tech. But the concept was very much like we were talking about, putting the profits back into sales and marketing costs. Don't worry about the the, the fancy so, yeah, desk, the fancy yeah, chairs, the fancy conference Reinvesting in your business. Reinvesting, but being careful with every penny mm -hmm. because that penny or that dollar can mean exponential uh, growth in profit and valuation ultimately. So being really careful with money um, in the early days is so critical. And then you create a culture of thrift, which is incredibly important in, in scaling and making any company successful. Well, as this has been fascinating, I can't thank you enough for for being here in uh, New York City. Obviously, it, it always creates an additional level of energy and excitement. And uh, I mean, you've done it as good as anyone ever could. I mean, congratulations on all your success and your continued uh, continued success, but also philanthropy and giving back. I think that's a uh, is very admirable. You know, I, uh, I think a lot of people that when they achieve success, they kind of disappear on the boat, and you didn't. You mm. know, it's a uh, you're 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 positively impacting people's lives, which is phenomenal. So thank you for coming here. I, I had a great time. I got to pick your brain about going international though. So, <laughs> anyway, thanks well, again. Well, thank you. Congrats to you on this, all the success you've no, had, you. Kyle. And it was fantastic yeah, speaking with you. you. Thank you for having me.